We're continuing in our developing a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview study with an emphasis on the exclusivity of Christ in a pluralistic culture. And we're going to look at John 1, John 14, and also 1 Timothy 5, and, um, or 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, as well as some other verses as we go along this evening. You have a handout in front of you, and one of the things that I've done each week is I've given you a different worldview definition. We have looked at a variety of worldview definitions that have a lot of parallels, a lot of things that are consistent about them, themes that you can pick up, but yet each one has its own uniqueness to help us understand this subject. This one is from John MacArthur, and he says, A worldview comprises one's collections of presuppositions, convictions, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and life. The Christian worldview sees and understands God the Creator and His creation, man and the world, primarily through the lens of God's special revelation, the Holy Scriptures, and secondarily through God's natural revelation in creation as interpreted by human reason and reconciled by and with Scripture for the purpose of believing and behaving in according in accord with God's will and thereby glorifying God with one's mind and life both now and in eternity. To say that truth is absolute rather than relative means that it is unchanging and universally the same. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So it's not a construct of our opinion. It's not a construct of the majority. It's that which actually corresponds to reality. Truth is absolute, not in and of itself, uh, but because it derives ultimately from God and from his character. It's grounded in an objectivity that is a part of his creation so that as we understand God better, we'll understand truth better and especially the truth that he has communicated to us. Absolute propositional truth depends on the absolute personal truth of God. And if God can be trusted and God is a self-revealing God, then what God reveals to us can therefore also be trusted. Truth matters. I shared with you in the last lesson that the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn appeared in a congressional hearing about anti-Semitism on their campuses last week. And they were asked by the U.S. Representative Elise Stefanik from New York if calling for the genocide of Jews violated their campus codes of conduct on bullying and harassment. They clearly had coordinated their answers, these college presidents had, before they appeared before uh, the hearing. And their answers were, it depends on the context. The exact quotes were, it can be depending on the context. Following the hearing, the U.S. House Committee launched an investigation into campus safety at the three schools, and wealthy donors started withholding funds. Money always talks. And a prominent rabbi resigned from Harvard's anti-Semitism advisory committee, which they obviously need to improve upon. The Penn president resigned uh, when, among other things and other pressure, a single donor withdrew a $100 million gift that had been committed. Uh, two others, um, or the others, I should say, the other two have uh, been called upon to resign or be fired, which is probably not likely. But none of this should really surprise us at all. These are thoroughly liberal people 
who promote the extreme of liberalism. The Harvard president, when she was challenged on this, said, I am sorry, words matter. Now, this is after a lot of pressure. This is not immediate, uh, but she said, I'm sorry, words matter. Evidently, she didn't know that words matter after 25 years in academia. Her statement went on to backpedal, and it actually contradicted the words that she spoke in the hearing. And here's what she said, and this is the point that I want to come to. I got caught up in what had become at that point an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. Now, here's the phrase I want you to hear. Substantively, I failed to convey what is my truth. Substantively, I failed to convey what is my truth. Now, few things clearly identify a person's worldview as the phrase, my truth. Gerald Baker wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled, Higher Education Slide from Veritas, Veritas being the concept of truthfulness, which is the motto of Harvard, uh, to my truth. And here's what he wrote in his article. He said, few phrases are as reliable as my truth for identifying seasoned purveyors of can't and double talk. Truth isn't something that can be identified or modified by a possessive pronoun. If my truth is different from your truth and your truth is different from her truth, these aren't truths. My truth is a device deployed to elevate the particular viewpoint of a member of a particular group or identity by claiming the validation of the truth for a narrow ideological cause. Truth has been deposed and replaced with the ideology of, my, of the my truth crowd. And the attitude is very straightforward. I believe what I believe, that's good for me. You believe what you believe, that's good for you. And the idea that truth is fixed, universal, objective, or absolute is outright rejected in these circles. Biblical truth is not subjective, but it is rather objective. In our last time together, we focused on atheism and secular humanism, Atheism encompassing anyone who does not believe in a supernatural God or gods. Secular humanism is embracing human reason and logic and secular ethics and naturalism over and against supernaturalism. In the last two studies before the end of the year, we are considering the exclusivity of Christ in a pluralistic world, which is this particular lesson. And then the last one will be how to apply a biblical worldview to life. And that'll be our practical application as we close out this study before the end of the year. Exclusive, by definition, means something that is limited to one. The doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ is essential to the gospel, to the mission, and to our understanding of what Christ did on the cross. The exclusivity of Christ states that there is no salvation apart from a conscious faith in Christ. This is also referred to as particularism or restrictivism. All are lost apart from a conscious and volitional embrace of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And there's no getting around the fact that Christianity teaches that it holds to exclusive truth, which by virtue of the whole concept of exclusive truth requires rejection of other beliefs. As you might imagine, this offends modern sensibilities. 
Uh, Terrence Thomas wrote in the Huffington Post, which is, of course, not a bastion of conservatism, to suggest that one out of 4,200 religions holds all the truth and the key to salvation is not only arrogant, of course, he's talking about Christians, it is spiritually narcissistic. That's his perspective, but that's the idea of many people. To accept Jesus Christ by faith and the truth claim of Christianity is to accept objective truth that has eternal consequences. Burke Parsons said, although many professed evangelicals have become precarious evangelifish, I would like to think that most have not yet succumbed to the most blatant sort of religious pluralism. Nevertheless, being the narrow-minded biblical fundamentalist that I am, I am decidedly close-minded to anything that is not biblical, and I concur with John Calvin's quote here. So what Parsons says. Wherefore, all theology, when separated from Christ, is not only vain and confused, but is also deceitful and spurious. spurious. For though the philosophers sometimes utter excellent sayings, yet they have nothing but what is short-lived and even mixed up with wicked and erroneous sentiments. As the closed-minded, Christ-minded, faithful, we have to push back against this pluralism that uh, undermines the truth that we know the Bible communicates to us. And he says, whether it's decreed from the Vatican or from Mecca, we live and breathe for Christ alone. And we proclaim that the Bible teaches that there is only one way to God. So I want to look at several characteristics of this exclusive truth as it relates to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And the first is this. The nature of Christ is exclusive. The nature of Christ is exclusive. Now, what I want to address here is, uh, by way of definition and by way of biblical support, who Jesus is and the implications of what Jesus did when God became man and dwelt among us. And that's what I want to emphasize in this particular uh, characteristic. John reminds us in his gospel that the word with God, which would be by definition a distinct person, also was God, meaning that he is equal with God. John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When we speak of the nature of something, what we are referring to is what an object is. And I want to focus here on the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus and why both are important and both are essential to our salvation. A divine nature is what God is in his one undivided essence, which we come to describe in terms of his attributes. So one of the things that's a little bit challenging because of his ways are not our ways, his ways are higher than our ways because he's God, he's spirit, he's eternal, he's all these things, is that God has revealed himself to us, but how do we practically understand God? Well, the way we get insight into the divine essence of who God is, is to understand the attributes of God. And when we understand the attributes of God and we study those, we gain insight into who God is uh, in his person. A human nature is what constitutes humanity, body and soul with corresponding capacities. We know that a human nature has a will, has a mind, it has emotions, and all of that comprises 
the nature of our humanity. Jesus asked a question of his disciples that's as important today as it was when Jesus asked it. And he asked in Mark 8 and verse 27, who do people say that I am? This is the question that we're asking tonight. Jesus Christ is unique in history, regardless of who's writing that history. He's not just a prophet or a priest or a king or a great teacher or a friend. He was all those things and is all those things and more. And we can either accept his nature or we can reject it. We can either accept his claims or we can reject them. We can either accept the record of his life or we can reject it. He is not a created being. He is rather the eternal son of God through whom all things are created and are sustained. Jesus is identified in the Bible in the sense of inaugurating God's kingdom. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 9 and verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time and forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We learn that the Son of God has existed in the Trinity for all of eternity. And there's been a significant debate in the last few years about this subject of the eternal sonship of Christ. And there are some that say that yes, Jesus was eternal. Yes, he's the second person of the Trinity. Yes, he is the Son of God as revealed in the incarnation. But he did not possess sonship for all of eternity. That was something that he took on. And I think that's false. I think that the scripture teaches that Jesus has existed in the Trinity for all of eternity. And I would affirm the eternal sonship of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus were demonstrations of his divine authority. When we read the miracles, they're not for just wonder and excitement. They're for authentication. Authentication of the Messiah, authentication of the message, and authentication of the mission. The Son is identified as God in the Scripture because he is the exact image and is the exact correspondence of the Father. With that, he shares with God the Father the divine rule, works, and worship. The Son has authority to forgive sin. Remember, that was one of the things that really stirred up the religious leaders is that Jesus would uh, forgive sins and, and make a clear truth claim about that. And we know that all Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. At Christmas, we are celebrating the Incarnation. What's the Incarnation? It's that God became flesh, he took on a human nature, he became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And this is where John 1 and verse 14 comes in. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word incarnation comes from the Latin, which means literally in the flesh. So God became flesh. He tabernacled among us in the flesh. 
And Scripture teaches that the divine Son, who eternally shares the divine nature with the Father and with the Spirit, acted to assume a human nature, and therefore the Son of God became incarnate. Matthew and Luke's gospel tell us that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and it was a miraculous birth in every way and the Word was made flesh. The incarnation is the supernatural act of a triune God whereby the eternal divine Son from the Father by the agency of the Spirit took into union with Himself a complete human nature apart from sin. As a result, God the Son now and forevermore exist as one person in two natures. As it relates to the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus has all the capacities of original humanity. These are significant issues, and they have been historically throughout church history. There have been councils about them. There have been a lot of uh, theological uh, wranglings about them. And it's important for us to understand this because of some of the things that it refutes. This refutes docetism, which said that Christ only appeared to be human. It refutes Apollinarianism, which says that Christ only assumed an incomplete human nature, which obviously is not biblically accurate either. His humanity is unfallen, and his humanity is untainted by sin in every way. In Scripture, a fallen nature is the result of sin against God, and it puts us in a place of sinfulness under God's judgment. But Christ is not in Adam like us, and he assumed nothing that was fallen. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. Christ is fully God and fully man, and he remains so eternally. This is important. It's not that Jesus took on flesh and then when he ascended back to God the Father that he laid down that flesh and went back in a pure form of deity to heaven. When he ascended back into heaven, he ascended back into heaven as fully God and fully man and he remains eternally so. So when you and I see Jesus someday face to face, and we will, if we're covered under the blood, we are in Christ then we're going to see him just as he was here on this earth, just as he ascended. That's why they said he's coming back, just as you see him now. And when we see him, whenever that is, either he returns or we go to be with him first, that's how he's going to be. The divine and the human natures do not exist in an unconnected way, but rather are joined in personal unity. And there's a theological term here called the hypostatic union, that is a way of understanding this and a way of talking about this, the union of two natures has not resulted in any mixture or in any diminishment of either nature. The nature of Jesus cannot be separated. He is eternally God and man. The doctrine of salvation rests on the belief that Christ had to become fully human in order to reveal deity to us. And Jesus is in a category by himself as the exclusive Son of God and Savior. The divine Son exists in who he is in his nature without changing the integrity of either his deity or his humanity. 
You might have heard of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 uh, AD, and it was an early church council, relatively speaking, early. And here's what they declared in part about this. And again, remember, they're refuting heresies. They're dealing with people that have incomplete understandings of his deity. They've got uh, erroneous understandings of his humanity. And they had to come to a conclusion biblically about what was most accurate. We all unanimously teach one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in deity and perfect in humanity, in two natures, without being mixed, transmuted, divided, or separated. The distinction between the two natures is by no means done away with through the union, but rather the identity of each nature is preserved and concurs into one person and being. Christianity has affirmed historically that there are three divine persons who share one individual nature, uh, one indivisible nature, I should say, and each is fully and equally God. This is the nature of Christ, and it is exclusive. The second part of this is that the finished work of Christ is exclusive. So now we move from who he is to what he's done. And here we go to John chapter 14 and verse 6, a verse that many of, not most of you could quote. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus promised in the verses leading up to this, in John 14 and verse 1 through 3, which really lay the foundation for this argument, that he is going to prepare a place for us and he will come again and receive us to himself, that where he is, there we will be also. When Jesus says that he's the way, after talking to his disciples about what he's going to do, he doesn't say, I know the way to heaven and I can point you to it. I can be your guide in that. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus said, I am the way and there's a difference because i can point you to the way of jesus christ i can point you to the gift of salvation i can point you to the exclusive finished work of christ but it's not me and it's not my power jesus makes it clear that it is him and it is by what he's done there's a story about a missionary that hired a guide to take him across a large desert when they arrived at the edge of the desert the missionary saw before him trackless sands. He couldn't see a footprint or a road anywhere in sight. So he asked his guide, where's the road? And the guide looks at him and says, I am the road. Jesus, in the same way, is the way to heaven. We're trusting him to take us there. And Jesus is the only way to heaven. With this exclusive truth claim, the validity of any other means of salvation is negated, it's denied. The God of Christianity is not the same God as the God of Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, secularism, or I should say God's plural when it comes to Hinduism in particular, or any other belief system. Human beings are sinful and can only be saved by God's grace that is received through faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He says also that he is the truth. Again, he doesn't say, 
I teach you the truth, although he did that. He said, I am the truth. Jesus is the eternal manifestation of the truth of God. And in that, he's the one that corresponds with reality. Jesus said, I am the life. John 5 and verse 26 says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Let's put these three realities together. The way, the truth, and the life declare the exclusivity of the finished work of Christ. His final statement makes it abundantly clear. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only exclusive way to God. Historic Christianity has affirmed the exclusivity of the gospel. The exclusivity of the gospel means that there is only one way, and it means specifically that only those who personally, consciously, explicitly, and singularly confess Jesus Christ as Lord can possess eternal life. It's very narrow and specific. Now, Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, used this phrase personally, consciously, explicitly, and singularly in something that he wrote, and then he unpacked it just a bit. And I want to do the same uh, from the direction that he took it in. Personally refers to the fact that salvation comes to us individually when we follow Christ. Nobody's going to get eternal life because of somebody else's faith. And in heaven, if everybody had a grandpa that was a preacher was saved in West Virginia, then everybody would be in heaven. I mean, like the whole crowd, because it seems like everybody's got a grandfather or a papa or an uncle or somebody that was a preacher. But you're not going by virtue of your papa or your grandpa to heaven. It's only personal faith in Jesus. Each sinner must come to repent of their sins and believe the gospel personally. Consciously refers to the fact that to inherit the kingdom, one must do more than reflect on who Christ is. You have to embrace him and follow him. So to state it this way, authentic believers know who it is that they're following. One of the clearest ways that you can find out whether somebody is a Christian or not is to ask them who Jesus is and what Jesus means to them. I mean, I'm telling you, he's the dividing line. He, he separates it all. Because there's a lot of people who like to talk about the generalities of faith, and it's important to have faith, and they like faith. But man, you talk about Jesus, and then the whole temperature of the room changes. But people who love Jesus and know Jesus, they're not going to be ashamed of him. And they're going to give you quickly a, a definition that includes their love for and faith in Jesus. Explicitly refers to the fact that one's faith must be placed in Jesus Christ and not just generically in God, which I've already touched on. And then singularly means that faith in Jesus alone saves and saving faith must be placed in Jesus alone. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior because there is no other person who is qualified to save. This is the nature of Christ, which is exclusive. This is the finished work of Christ, which is exclusive. And now we come to the mission of Christ, which is exclusive. 
The mission of Christ is is exclusive. The exclusivity of Jesus drives the mission of the people of God because we're motivated by the glory of God and the spiritual need of those who are lost. Zane Pratt serves with the International Mission Board on the executive leadership team, and he's been a missions professor, served in Central Asia for a number of years as a missionary, was very influential in the um, foundations document from the International Mission Board that defined a lot of things of what we believe about missions. And he said this, he said, evangelism by definition is the proclamation of the good news. It has the gospel at the very center of its being. And in the same way, Christian mission as defined and understood biblically has the gospel at its very heart. The mission of the church is is the task which God sends his body into the world to accomplish. And that task has the gospel as its foundation, its directive, and its content. The command to go and preach the gospel flows from the requirement of conscious faith in Jesus for salvation. Let's look at Romans 10 and verse 14 and 15 just for a moment. Romans 10 and verse 14 and 15. Beginning in verse 14, he says, How then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The Apostle Paul made it clear that faith in Christ comes only when the good news of Jesus is understood and responded to with personal belief. Now let's follow the logic here as as it unfolds. The unreached are not able to believe in Jesus Christ if they have not heard of him. The only way people can hear the good news is if someone proclaims it. If those communicating the gospel are not sent they cannot reach those who have not heard. So it's essential that we communicate this good news, this mission of the exclusivity of Christ, and understand that this is part of how God has ordered it. That God has ordered it, that His church, His children, followers of Jesus, would be faithful communicators of the good news. And evangelism at its core is communicating the good news of Jesus to people who need to hear it. J. Gresham Machen, who was a stalwart for conservatism in the 20th century, wrote this. He said, In answer to the objection that exclusivism is too narrow, it may be said simply that the Christian way of salvation is narrow only so long as the church chooses to let it remain narrow. The name of Jesus is discovered to be strangely adapted to men of every race and of every kind of previous education. And the church has ample means with promise of God's Spirit to bring the name of Jesus to all. If, therefore, this way of salvation is not offered to all, it is not the fault of the way of salvation itself, but the fault of those who fail to use the means that God has placed in their hands. So what, what do we do in response to this truth in Romans chapter 10? We prepare to share the gospel so that we understand the exclusive nature of Christ. We understand the exclusive uh, work that has been finished by Christ. And now we understand the exclusive mission. And as we do that, we pray for people to respond. 
because nobody's going to get saved by our winsomeness. Nobody's going to get saved by our logic. Nobody's going to get saved by our arguments. They're going to get saved when the truth of Scripture is applied to their lives and the Spirit of God brings conviction and they see Jesus Christ and His glory and they want to follow Him and repent of their sins and turn to Him. I'd say to you, to you tonight, if you're not saved, that's how you get saved, is understanding who Jesus is, what He's done, and responding to Him by faith. And the beauty of this is that the gospel of Jesus is not narrow in the sense that it's only offered to a few. It's an important nuance here. There was an article in uh, CNN Travel that was entitled The Ten, Ten of the World's Most Exclusive Members Clubs. And only a few select people in the world would qualify into these members clubs because they're high society. But the gospel's op the opposite of that. It's been said the exclusivity of Christ is narrow in its location, but it's broad in its invitation. It does not matter a person's economic status doesn't matter their religious background it doesn't matter where they come from geographically it doesn't matter what their family circumstances are everybody is invited to follow jesus and while there is only one way to salvation and it is incredibly narrow all people are invited to come to christ for salvation and that is incredibly broad for god so loved the world in luke 14 and verse 21 jesus Disciples are told that they're to go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. You see, Christian evangelists and preachers and missionaries and children of God need to anchor themselves in the fact that a person has to follow the gospel of Christianity, has to have a relationship with Jesus to be saved. This is non-negotiable. This is essential to understand this. And it doesn't matter if it's a good person in Texas who's not yet come to Christ. They need his righteousness. They need to hear the gospel and believe and follow Christ to be saved. It doesn't matter if it's a Mormon in Utah or a Jehovah's Witness in Dunbar or a Sikh or a Buddhist. If they're going to be saved, they have to abandon false religion and follow Jesus. And that's why this mission is so exclusive. And all who are serious about the gospel should have a strong sense of urgency. Because if we're serious about the gospel, we'll be serious about it being shared. Because we understand what's at stake. Eternity's at stake. And this is why we pray for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. It's not just a nice brochure and an offering envelope so you can feel better about yourself supporting the mission. We do that because there's people who are willing to say yes to the call of God and go to the hardest places on the earth and be faithful to share the good news about Jesus. And we get to be a part of that through our praying, our giving, our going, our personal involvement. And we get to be a part of the blessing of God through Him using our lives. Let's think for just a few moments about some challenges against exclusivism. These are not comprehensive, but they are categorically representative, I think, of what we might encounter. One is already referred to in my sermon title tonight in pluralism, and that's the first one that I want to address. It refers to the belief that two or more religious worldviews can be equally valid or acceptable. It accepts multiple paths to God. Religious, uh, the ecumenical movement of religion is a proponent of this. Now, 
We talked about this a couple of sessions back in terms of the law of non-contradiction, which says that two things cannot be contradictory toward one another and at the same time both be true. This holds true as it relates to salvation. You cannot say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and then say, but if you're really sincere, if you want to follow after Islam, you'll be saved. If you're really sincere and you're a, you're a Hindu in the middle of India, doesn't matter if you hear the gospel or not, you believe what you want to believe, you hold to your truth, my truth, we all hold to the truth that we like, and it's all going to work out in the end. This is the concept that all roads lead to the top of the mountain. And we know, of course, that the Bible clearly refutes this. Another challenge against exclusivism is what's called inclusivism. Inclusivism. This refers to the idea that the sinner does not need to explicitly believe the gospel in order to be saved. It teaches that Christianity is the only true religion, but that salvation is available in ways other than explicit faith in Christ. This was a little bit confusing because uh, the idea is that everybody is saved because of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection, but you don't even need to know that. So like if you're a sincere uh, Muslim, then in, in your faith is in Allah, then it doesn't really matter because you'll still be saved based on what Jesus did. And it's all kinds of confusing. So they affirm the uniqueness of Jesus on the one hand, and then the possibility of saving activity in other religions on the other hand, which we would, I would, the Bible would completely refute. And then universalism. This is the belief that everyone will be saved, that all people will eventually end up in heaven. This is in direct contradiction to Christianity. To say that those who reject God's provision of salvation through his son will be saved is to minimize the holiness and the justice of God, and it is to minimize the cross and the essential nature of the cross. It's just saying all dogs are going to go to heaven. Except it's talking about people. That's the idea. And there's this universalism. And there is a universalism that is very prevalent in the culture because have you noticed that everybody rests in peace? Well, let me tell you, folks, everybody's not resting in peace. It's a nice gesture in the moment, but everybody's not resting in peace. Only those who are resting in, in the only ones who are resting in peace are the ones who know Jesus, who is our peace. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. He's bridged the gap between us and God. Church history has shown us again and again that whenever the church has lost the sharp edge of gospel proclamation of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one mediator, one name by which you must be saved, it's lost its influence. And we see this all around us with institutions that still call themselves churches but hold to these heretical beliefs about things like inclusivism and, and uh, universalism and so on and lead so many people astray. God works through the gospel. And we are to speak. That's our work. God saves. That's what he does. We pay a small price. We might face some hostility. We might get some negative remarks because we're bold in the gospel. But why do we do it? Because we want to see other people live. 
We want to see them understand what it means to be right with God, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to know that you're going to heaven someday. Not just this ambiguous generality of what a faith is, but explicit faith and exclusive faith in Jesus. Now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, and I'm going to close with this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only way. His nature, his finished work, his mission, and we get to be a part of it by grace through faith. We're going to wrap up next session with an emphasis on how to apply this biblical worldview that we've been learning over these 11 weeks. I trust it's been encouraging to you. I hope it has at least, and look forward to bringing it in in summary form and applying it when we come together for the last session.